Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Pastor. Dr. Robin, good afternoon. Well, hello there. I'm just about to drink my black tea. That's what I do every day after my cup of coffee. Yeah. And I try to have it before the noon hour so that I'm not drinking caffeine after the noon hour. But um, because Lord knows we can't interrupt those sleep patterns. Well, <laughs> caffeine does fuck with me. Um, yeah. But so I'm I'm about to have my Lopsong Suchong, which is Chinese black tea. It is smoky in flavor and and um smoky, yeah, smoky in flavor, like you, yeah, like me. And I'm drinking out of my brown educated and queer mug because I just need to feel the reinforcements of all the things. Yeah. Yes. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. I have, um, I had a, a very busy weekend, um, just lots going on and, um, but, and, and I'm finding that the work is not ceasing just because the week has started. So I, uh, I'm going to need to find some time this week to carve out for me and to, you know, recenter and, and, and not be, you know, burdened by to do's, but, I will, I will do that. I'll find time for that. Some, at some point. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm also feeling You know, that. that's not my forte. Yeah. So. I mean, I'm also feeling that. I, I worked both Saturday and Sunday and now we're at Monday and I um, was sort of commenting last night how I like to feel rested coming into the week and yeah. um, I don't feel rested. And yeah. I know that same. I know that there are a lot of people who work seven days a week and who are working 12 um, and 16 hours a day. And so um, that sense of fatigue is not uncommon for much of the working class and the working poor. And so um, tells me that we need to change some things. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We've, we started out. So, so for our listeners, just a little behind the scenes um, insight into kind of how Dr. Robin and I do this work. We have been kind of having conversations and thinking really deeply about what we want season two to look like for um, activist theology and, and how we want to frame this narrative in a way that both allows us to have conversations with people who um, whose voices really matter in this moment, um, but also for you, the listeners, to feel as if you are hearing and experiencing 
the kind of work that we believe needs to be done in the world in real time so that you feel as if you're a part of this conversation with us, not just listening to and then moving on uh, into into something else on your own personal to-do list. And so we have we had the opportunity the last two episodes to dig really deeply into, um, you know, looking at what it what it's like to be poor in in the world with Lindsay Cranks and the launch of her book, Praying With Our Feet. And then last week, we had a fantastic discussion with Dean Spade about mutual aid. If you all have not listened to that episode, uh, when you're done with this one, back up and listen to it. You don't have to listen to them in order, but it is really an important conversation around why it is important for us to care for one another and how we should be doing that work um, in real time. And so we wanted to just take some time today to connect some of those dots between what Lindsay shared with us and what Dean shared with us and, um, you know, thinking about what the Activist Theology podcast is is going gonna, is gonna, to um, be doing this season. So I'm excited. I'm excited to have this conversation. And, and I always love it when Robin and I just get to, you know, hang out and talk and pretend like nobody's in the background listening to us. Yeah. We're just like sipping bourbon, even though it's daytime. Yeah. But just pretend like it's a late night and we're sipping bourbon and solving all the problems of the world. You know, um, I miss those times. Remember when we were, remember when we were in Asheville? Yes. I remember I remember all the things about Asheville. There was some <laughs> there was some really weird shit that happened in Nashville or in Asheville. Uh, we stayed in this really bizarre home, uh, Airbnb that has many, many stories <laughs> to tell. <laughs> but yeah, there were, there were some amazing nights in Nashville on the front porch, drinking bourbon and talking about, talking about the world we envision. Yeah. One of these, one of these days we'll have, we'll have nights like that again. Yeah. Yeah. But, feel but, for the moment, we have FaceTime and this podcast. We do. FaceTime and podcast and copious amounts of Zoom calls. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it is Monday. And yesterday was the culmination of the National Football League season. For those of you that are either not in the United States or are not sports fans, um, you know, football is a bit of a religion in this country, uh, not in not in good ways. Um, but the Super Bowl was yesterday and m- some of you may have watched the Super Bowl for the game. Some of you may have watched the Super Bowl like Dr. Robin did for the halftime show. And some of you may have watched the Super Bowl for the commercials. I, I guess there's a handful of you that might have watched it for all of those things. Um, although I'm hard pressed to meet anybody who says I'm going to really sit down and spend four hours of my life, like, you know, experiencing what this, what this, uh, what this thing, what this Super Bowl has to offer me. Um, and so, how was the halftime show for you, Doctor Robin? Well, so this is interesting. Um... Because I have um, 
you know, I see the world with a certain lens. Yes. And some of Aaron's former students were dancing in the show. Oh, okay. And, and, um, you know, we have, I think, sort of engineered into this culture if we work hard enough, we can make it. Mm. And if we make it, then we are no longer subject to the bullshit. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and actually, um, you know, Aaron and I had a pretty heated conversation last night around her wanting to celebrate her, her student, her former students. Sure. And my response to that being, it's like giving people opium to numb them. Mm. And what I mean by that is, um, in, in, in the same way that, for example, someone in my field finishes their degree, gets a tenure track job, and they have some sort of security institutional security then they don't have to think about the struggle right what that what that does or even when someone you know who someone like yourself who gets a full-time pastor job and you know sort of gets enveloped into the system or the community that that there is um a kind of amnesia that happens for all of us. And we forget that when, when we reach milestones like these kids did, it is by design by the system to, to make me, you, those kids, a commodity fetish. Yeah. And, and Aaron and I had, um, a really hard conversation last night of she just wanted to celebrate her yeah. kids. Yeah. And, you know, my position was, I totally see that. I'm glad they worked hard. I'm glad they had this chance. And also yeah. if we celebrate that, we reinforce that that path is the path that we should steward. And, um, and it was a really hard conversation. Yeah. Um, for I Aaron. can see that. I can see that. I um I mean I I I very much like Aaron would have had would have had would have heard the conversation and heard exactly what you were saying. Um and yet also felt buoyed by um the you know the the what what she you know, likely deemed as success mm -hmm. for, you know, these, these humans that um, she cares deeply for. And yeah, it's, it is, it is hard all the way around, um, you know, very similar conversations around, you know, professional sports in and college sports in general, um, a very similar, you know, take on the ways that we, um, you know, commodify mm -hmm. the, the bodies and the talents of what end up being predominantly black and brown bodies. Um, 
and people make millions and millions and billions in some cases of dollars off of those bodies and the sport that is beating up those bodies. And I say all that also like being a sports fan. I'm like, I wrestle with that problematic piece all the time, right. Of how, like, how, how do I, like, where, where do I find myself today in this, you know, in this space of understanding both pieces? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, you know, enjoying the thrill of competition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm a seven. I, yeah. I love, you know, I love the energy and the excitement and the, you know, the thrill that comes with, um, with, you know, com- competitive sports mm-hmm. and all that to say still problematic right (laughs) yeah i mean Um, i mean you know it it i I know that i know that we talked about this on text but you know even we can use the inauguration as an example yeah of 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 this like there there are many things to celebrate right and there are also a way to see what um what 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 I what I call um imperial optimism that we should be concerned about, right? And um I, I posted on on Instagram which goes to to Facebook and then I also posted on Twitter on inauguration day and I got a lot of pushback from people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, and this is going to get into what we're going to talk about later, but right. people want to feel good right. about what's happening. And, you know, this has, I think, lots of different na- ways of naming itself, the sense of emotionalism. Like we, we um, in this country, um, sort of accelerate patterns of emotionalism through things like nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I know that you're not a Marvel fan, but we started watching WandaVision. And mm-hmm. and it's very interesting the ways in which um, the role of trauma and pain gets recuperated through white nostalgia mm-hmm. in, in this show. Um, and, and I think that, you know, we had Jeannie Alexander on talking about fascism and what happened at the Capitol. We've talked to Lindsey Krinks about why it's so important to, um, to live out our politics, what we might call our theologies and ethics. And we talked with Dean about networks of care through practices of mutual aid all of all of that i think is in response to um both of our concerns about the ways in which things get um grafted into systems mm-hmm. of dominance the ways and get ways in which people and bodies black bodies in particular get commodified um and the pernicious logics of these systems that um that do things like the halftime show so that we can celebrate art but you know 
whose art is good, whose mm-hmm. art gets accepted. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, the weekend is one of only a handful of black artists that would say yes to the NFL for this, you know, the art that was on display last night. And why is that? Like, what is that about? Yeah. I mean, it's about, it's a, it's about Kaepernick. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's about many other things, but I think it, I think, I think, you know, what the league did to Colin Kaepernick um, during his, you know, nonviolent, silent protest around the the crime being inflicted on black bodies really positioned for a lot of black artists the fact that leagues like the NH the NFL don't care about them other than what they can do for them. Mm-hmm. Again, the you know how they are commodified and how they are used to fuel a, a another capitalist system that you know that is harmful and so it it's i think you know my challenge in in this conversation is that you know we would talk to i i could i could be assuming incorrectly here but i think i'm probably fair in saying this you know if we were to talk to psychologists or therapists the need for us to manifest our emotionalism in ways that lift our spirits and that uh, create um, energy within our bodies and our brains and our hearts and the cells in our in our skin is important. I mean, the, the, the positive side of that emotionalism is critical to our well-being. Mm-hmm. You know, we we need we need areas in our life where we we can find and experience joy and mm-hmm. happiness and and pride and 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 love and care in in real time ways and yet we also need to be consistently reminded of how that that we still are in problematic times and that there is a dismantling of systems that would create false understandings of that joy and that love and that um, pride and that care that, that we might experience. And, and my, my wrestle right now in my life is deciphering between the two, Mm. you know, what part of this, what part of this emotional um, response that I'm feeling is good and true and guided by systems that are that either have already been dismantled and rebuilt in ways that are liberative and what part of that joy is is buoyed by systems that are problematic right um, and so it you know it becomes because I don't I don't I I we are definitely not saying that finding joy and happiness in things is a is a bad thing it's a necessary thing yeah um but those those balances are difficult right um yeah you know i you know um i think this is a struggle for a lot of people and and i think that we we all as a culture 
have a hard time with discerning how to practice pleasure activism that doesn't perpetuate hegemonic systems. Right. And when we see things, one one of the things that I saw when I when I had the the Super Bowl on last night is that the NFL is donating, I think, two hundred and fifty million dollars to address systemic racism, and I, you know. I know a lot of people feel good about that. Right. Right. Yeah. Like I feel a certain way. I don't think good is what I, what I would say I feel about it, but yes, you're right. Many people say, Oh, that's amazing. Right. And like, and like a lot of people are like, okay, well it's done. I can, I can watch football now. Right. Right. Um, in the same way that I struggle with even that move of the NFL investing $250 million into systemic racism. Also, how do they get that money? You know, like we need to interrogate, where does the money come from? Right. A whole nother episode. (laughs) Right. But, but Biden has also signed some sort of executive action or executive order or something to, to look at, structural racism for a lot of people who I I saw that image on Instagram and, and for a lot of people, they will say that's enough. Oh, we're, we're, we've dealt with the issue, right? It's, it's how we get the narrative of we had a black president. We don't have a race problem. Right. Um, I take the position that unless there is a profound break with the system, that that could be electoral politics, that could be the institutional church, that could be the, the academy, that could be lots of things, then the system itself is actually not stewarding a logic of liberation. Right. Even though we might feel good about what the system is doing the NFL, the, the United States, whatever. Right. Because none of the problematic pieces of the system have been demolished. Right. We, we are using executive orders. We are using money. We are using, you know, uh, books written by well-meaning authors that are white and black and brown to be the salve for a, a problem that really has to begin and end with a, an understanding of of why reparations have been called for in the first place. Right. Um, we have to destroy the 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 systems that got us to a point where money and 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 politics allow us to think we can get ourselves out of it. Um, and we and we just can't. We can't. We can't buy our way out of it. We can't legislate our way out of it. None of that. Um, but the work that is required for 
us, and I say us specifically as as a as a white person, is it, it is going to require um, a reckoning mm-hmm. of 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 what got us here and those that's the kind of pain and those are the kinds of conversations and that's the kind of uncomfortableness that no one wants to deal with right because it's much easier to legislate and pay our way out of it right um so we just we we had we talked a little bit about kind of the 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 challenges with this sporting event and and the one aspect of this that we haven't gotten to is the commercials mm-hmm. now i am unapologetically trained and raised as a creative a marketer like that's that's my that's what i do um outside of you know the the work i do in in faith circles but and so i love a good i love a well-written commercial i love good branding like i i mean it really like it makes me like warm in those parts of my of those parts of my body um and and there were a few commercials last night that i laughed my butt off at yeah i mean i was just like okay like well done you well done um there were some that i laughed hysterically at that my partner looked at me and was like i I don't get it i'm like okay well (laughs) that's that's fine you didn't have to but um he just couldn't understand why i found the ashton kutcher mila kunis um shaggy commercial about the cheetos so funny i mean i really was like on the floor laughing if any of you saw it you know which one i liked is the um gwen stefani and um and, and blake and blake Adam, yeah yeah <laughs> blake Sheldon, Adam Levine, yeah i mean th- there there were some there's there were some good branding on display yeah. last night and yeah. and and ad agencies uh, have known for you know for you know 60 years that the super bowl is a is a place where you know well I mean, as long as it's been broadcast in the way that it has been probably the last 30 years, that Super Bowl advertising is an amazing way to like land their brand on the map. Right. And then Chrysler decided to finally get Bruce Springsteen to say yes to doing a commercial for Jeep. And at this point, I feel like I've run into a brick wall. I've my head is sore from banging it against said brick wall. And I, I literally watched that commercial with a stunned silence. Just not understanding how blind we could be to all the things that were going wrong in, in that commercial. Um, and, 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 and like, that's the kind of commercial that makes us feel good. Right, right. I mean, I can't tell you the number of people that, I mean, I woke up this morning and went through, you know, like I do every morning, went through all my feeds, went through my Twitter feed, my Instagram feed, my Facebook feed, looked up, you know, looked at what was going on in, on Reddit. And everybody, not everybody, many people were heartened and so grateful that 
the Jeep, com- that the Jeep commercial was what it was. And it said all the right things. And yes, this is exactly who we need to be and how amazing it is that, you know, Springsteen actually said yes to a commercial for the first time. And this was the one he agreed to do. And he was so involved in the making of it and blah, 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 like vomit my face yeah. off. You know, it is a commercial that talks about a little church that sits smack dab in the center of the 48 continental United States. And it's a church that welcomes everyone. It's a, it's a, it's a place that all roads lead to. And then the rhetoric of the middle shows up. And so not only do we have this Jeep commercial talking about this land is our land uh, taking place on stolen land in the middle of the country, land that does not belong to us, has never belonged to us, belonged to uh, indigenous people centuries before we stole it from them. Then we also have white nationalism on full display with the, you know, the, the idea that, you know, Christian, that, that, that Christian being Christian and coming to this little country church is the be all end all and is the right thing for us to be if we want to get to a place where unity is possible. And then Bruce Springsteen's talking about the middle. And how we just need to find the way to the middle, the middle between failure and fear, the middle between blue and red, the middle between I mean, all the, I mean, I just, it, it was the same ick I felt in my stomach, Robin, when I was listening to Biden's inauguration speech about unity. You know, when you talk about um, the middle and, I, you know, that that commercial which i did not see during the super bowl i you sent it to me and as as we were figuring out how to connect the dots you know between the beginning of the season until now and you know i watched that commercial i read the article and and then there was this whole like twitter conversation about the about middle space um, right and and I was participating in some of that conversation. And, you know, I think that we have used this language of middle. I mean, I remember in LGBT movement space around marriage equality that the discourse and the rhetoric was about the movable middle. Right. That if we can, that if we can move the middle, we can achieve this thing, right? Yeah, like like we are a dial, and that like fifty percent is like what what we want to achieve, and we have from fifty to one hundred, and then from fifty down to zero, and that we just need to like dial it in so it's the sweet spot. What's interesting about this metaphor of middle is that I think it perpetuates center and margin. Mm. And, you know, like, let's just think about where they shot that film. In Kansas, right? Right. 
I mean, I'm assuming they shot it there. They that's they are referencing a church in Kansas. I'm assuming that that's also where it was shot, but I don't know that for certain. You know, when we think about things like the geographic center of a place, we we also cannot we also cannot reference the geographic center of place without also recognizing the machinations of the center of dominance. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And, and we, we saw the rhetoric continue with this commercial being highly praised by dominant culture. Right. I mean, you know, the people that, that approved of Springsteen's uh, words were people who are Springsteen fans, who are, you know, largely uh, Gen Xers and older, who have been following him since they were young, who, you know, think of him as being someone who is um, kind of metaphorically the nucleus of white, rural, hardworking blue collar America. I mean, that that's, that's what his music has largely represented. And it was those people Mm -hmm. who were largely supportive of the, the, the words and the sentiment of the, the message that was delivered. It just felt very, it, I mean, it just felt really uncomfortable for me. And I, I am, I think that it is it when those feelings of uncomfortableness happen i i recognize how differently i'm responding now than i responded a year ago than mm-hmm. i responded 5 years ago than i responded 20 years ago to the this you know what others believe is a path forward to me just doesn't feel like anything other than rhetoric and um and and a model for reconciliation that does not in any way center those that need to be liberated Mm. yeah you know i um i wonder about and feel really curious about why do we feel we being the cultural body why do we feel like we need to appeal to the middle? What, what even, Mm. what even like, is there some nostalgia around appealing to the middle? Mm. Like if we, and, and, you know, I mean, we could talk about politics and, and whatnot Mm. and the ways in which centrist folks have also accelerated supremacy culture, Mm -hmm. but like, let's just, Let's just take Obama, for example, who was more of a centrist figure in politics, right? He um he played to the middle a lot in the in the vein of I am doing bipartisanship work. Right? So who did he get for his prayer breakfast? He got Rick Warren. (laughs) Because he didn't, I mean, my sense is Obama didn't want to be seen as an angry black man. Right. So you get Rick Warren, 
who um softens or or straddles the middle it's like a seesaw right that we used to be on when we were kids you know you've got obama on one side he wants someone on the other side that's going to at least balance him out to the point that neither one of them is touching the ground (laughs) right and so but what is that like what what message does that send to people who have been harmed by evangelical churches and i i think particularly around communities that I'm involved in, not just the trans community and the queer community, but communities of color. And, um, and, and so I, I find myself while I don't like the the ways in which polarization functions in our, in our Mm -hmm. culture, I also get very concerned about playing to the middle like as an effort that that can bring us together because I don't think coming to the middle or finding ourselves more palatable in the world actually does the hard work of honoring the real differences that exist that cause us from being in relation with one another. Right. Well, and and regardless of whether you're talking about, you know, liberation theology or, um, you know, the work of the Protestant church, you know, post-Reformation, I mean, we have always, there has always been a sentiment that if we can get close enough, adjacent to the poor, the marginalized, the edge of the edge. If we are, if we are poor adjacent, if we are queer adjacent, if we are, um, you know, adjacent to the things that are uncomfortable, we are close enough to an expression of fairness and rightness and liberation that can then help those who we are adjacent to. All that that really means, though, is that adjacency puts us in the middle. Right. (laughs) It doesn't put us on the edge of either extreme. And for you and I, and for the conversation that we have on this podcast, you know, I mean, we are we are never going to be on the extreme of, you know, supremacy culture and and finding rightness there. But, you know, we are also striving all the time to figure out how we are not just adjacent to the challenge, how we literally kind of move ourselves past the middle and into the space of the margins as well. And you, and you know, that, you know, that that space much in ways that I will never know. Um, And, but I think that that's, that's one of the challenges that we have in looking at, you know, commercials like we saw with Brick, with Springsteen and rhetoric like we saw with Biden during his inauguration address, that kind of passive aggressive um, wish, dream, aspiration for who we can be as a people is, is, is false in in every sense. There's there it's not attainable based on the model that 
white men and the dominant culture have used over the the you know hundred years that this mm-hmm. that this country has been has been around hundreds of years. I mean, it's just it's not you know, attainable. It, it it makes me think about. Um, I've been doing a fair amount of um, rabbit hole chasing for my book. And mm, I love that. <laughs> and I've been going down these very interesting routes, reading about political theory and political categories and whatnot. And I would love at some point to actually have a conversation on the podcast about why these political categories fail us time and time again. And what I'm, what I mean by that and is we keep, and we keep letting them. <laughs> well, we're so invested in things like liberal conservative or traditional or progressive, right? Mm-hmm. When none of those categories um, define my political or theological commitments. Right. But I get conscripted into things like progressive Christianity or mm-hmm. liberalism because mm-hmm. because of the way the rhetoric works. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm I'm thinking a lot around how how do we do social healing work through relationship building. Yeah. And you know, I'm, I'm writing about democracy right now and what do we mean by that and how does it get, how does it get played out? And, you know, we, we have invested in categories that like define us and we have no historical memory of them or the ways in which we are inheriting really bad politics and i and i think this commercial is an example of the ways in which progressive thought tries to um i I call it imperial optimism right tries to be optimistic about the bullshit when actually not really addressing root systems of why yeah and would you say that we are conscripted into these categories? So, uh, so I would say that I am, I identify as a progressive and a Democrat because there has been a lack of imagination around ways in which I can describe myself that allow me to vote in an election that is, you know, planned and and conscripted by the dominant culture. I, I am, I assume those, those descriptions of myself because we as a people have a lack of imagination around the broadness and the expansiveness of who we can be and how we can be with one another. And therefore, we are, I mean, it, it's much easier for us to say, are you A or B? Are you one or two? Um, and, and, and as we have often talked, you know, 
it's it's that that theory of black and white. There's a there's a binary there that allows for an erasure in some ways of the middle. Um, and when someone says to you, "Oh, I'm a moderate," the question is, like, what the hell does that mean? Are right. you a moderate on like on which side of the dial are you wow. in moderation? And I wonder, you know, how you how would you respond to this? to this kind of understanding of our lack of imagination or our lack of capacity to take ourselves past this binary rhetoric, which, which really just, I mean, all it does for me is it says, okay, if I want to vote, like what's the best option based on what my politic or my moral code or my ethics lean toward versus who am I really in relationship with with others in this world, and how do I f- define myself in that way? Well, this is why these categories don't really work for us right now, right? Because a Democrat, historically, is someone who is practicing democracy. Right. And democracy in ancient philosophy was a form of communalism. We are very far from that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But that the imagination of democracy was this kind of participatory communalism. I mean, there there was also the free class and whatnot, you know, as a part of that. But there was this imagination of communalism. And, you know, fast forward to the 21st century – you have major political parties that that really, with the exception of a, a few different ways in which they vote on committee at the federal level, there's not much difference between them. And so what we're really dealing with is ideology that that has trickled down into community and has accelerated lots of harm. Yeah. You know, I think that while I tend to vote in that block of a person who is running on a democratic ticket, right? There were many years where I didn't vote because I think that voting is part paying allegiance to the state and I have no desire to give my allegiance to the state. Anyways, we can, that's a different conversation, but you know, I think that while I vote in this particular way, um, the, the politicians and, and like, I'm glad that people like Cory Bush and, and has joined the squad, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. But progressivism is still very steeped in a kind of imagination that doesn't break with the dominant system. Yeah. And what I'm really curious about for us as a nation and for those of us who are in 
deep community with those who are most impacted by the system is how can we actually create conditions for the kind of healing that people need if we remain too close to the system? Yeah. Does it require something of us? Yeah. A break, a severing, a reimagination of the system as a whole, not a capitulation to the system in a way that feels as if we're fighting it, even though we know we're never actually fighting it. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, it's an, it's a big idea. It's, it's the right idea. Um, And yet, you know, we are all, I mean, we're all kind of stuck on this hamster wheel of, you know, the, the reimagining piece of what's possible versus the attaining of what we, what we think our imaginations can, can bring us. Um, you know, folks, we, we have tried over the last few weeks and, and we will continue to over the next couple of weeks uh, after this episode to connect some dots for you on how we use our understandings of the poor, of, um, you know, uh, anarchy, of mutual aid, um, we're going to be talking in the near future about, um, you know, a, a, the the understanding and the need for a living wage for for folks. This conversation that we're having in in the beginning of season two in our podcast is really meant to ask you to take a deep look at where you are in your own politic, where you are in your own work toward liberation where you find yourself in the middle of your own community. There is much more work that you can do right outside your front door with the neighbor that lives on the other side of the wall from you, with the person that you see walking their dog, um, you know, during COVID, um, with your, you know, the person that delivers your mail or the person that delivers your groceries than can ever be done with the federal side of our government. And, and, you know, we harp on local politics a lot, but this really is a a reckoning of how we can be together as humans in the neighborhoods in which we find ourselves and in a community of care that understands that we are not the left, the right, and the middle. We are not the the black, the white, and the middle. We are all human beings, human doings, human feelings who are just trying to find our way through the bullshit. And I think if anything happens through the work that Robin and I are giving you in this in the first part of this season two, I mean, that's the kind of hope that we have for us. That's the kind of work that we hope is is being done in your hearts and is being, you know, knitted in your being right now. Um, and I think, you know, these are important conversations, Robin. And our our goal in this, as we've said many times, is to just put them in a space where others can you know, get them, can listen to them, can embrace them, can engage with them, can tweet at us, can do whatever. And also 
um, we can connect the dots for them on the ways that they can then move that work of their own and get their hands dirty in their own communities. Yeah. And I don't want us to, I mean, I love the sort of poetic nature of we are all humans um, Mm. as we think about like, how do we be together in this work? And I also know that there are real material consequences for the ways in which we are embodied in the world. Uh, And so I know that you don't mean to be erasing that, but I just want to make sure that people hear us very clearly that in an effort to, you know, think about building togetherness through categories like what is beautiful or what is loving or how do we practice more empathy or, um, you know, all of these, all of these different sort of categories of affect that accelerate things like togetherness, right? Like, yes, I, you know, I, I, I know that when we talk about togetherness, we are talking about how do we stitch together a social fabric that allows black people to be able to sleep in their bed without gun violence. It means, you know, honoring the fact that it's not been that long ago when Asian peoples were unjustly incarcerated and we still haven't dealt with that, right? Like we are not minimizing the bullshit. Correct. But I do want us to sort of hold the paradoxical nature of togetherness, that it, it demands something of us. And, and, you know, this human experiment is is we're still we're still trying to do it right um and we're still trying to make sense of our lives and we may never see the fruit of this right but it but it matters that we're pursuing this avenue for the seven generations that will come after us. Yes. Friends, we are grateful that you're on this journey with us. We hope that this episode has helped to, as we've said, connect some of the dots of the things that we've talked about and the work that we intend to do over the next couple of episodes. We are excited for you to rejoin with us next week. And um, we will in the meantime, continue to be in solidarity with you and alongside you as you get your hands dirty in this work. Don't forget that you can reach out to us. We want to engage with you. We love engaging with our listeners um, at Activist Theology. Don't forget Activist and Theology share a T. Uh, you can find us on every platform. Uh, there's no place that you can't be in touch with us. And we are grateful that you Um, reach out, that you ask us questions, that you challenge us about the things that you hear and the things that we say. It's uh, it quite frankly, we love doing the podcast, but engaging with you is one of our favorite things. So we appreciate that from all of you. And Dr. Robin, until next week, we will keep doing this work and we'll keep fighting the good fight. Let's get free. 
Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds.